Well, happy Father's Day. It is a huge honor to be here from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Pastor Doug, who's one of my best friends on planet Earth, I wanna just say uh, thank you to Pastor Doug for giving us the opportunity to be here. He and Beth have become very dear friends to our family, and he reached out. He said, hey, man, would you come preach on Father's Day? I'm like, Doug, I'm a dad, okay? I can't, like, leave and come to your church. He's like, no, no. I, he goes, we, we wanna introduce you to Jellystone Park. Bring your kids, okay? Bring your whole family. And so we did. You guys set me up for big success as a dad, okay? I'm like a hero. We, we, we watched a bunch of Yogi Bear leading up to this trip. My kids now think they're fostering a relationship with, with Yogi Bear. Uh, we've been to his house, okay? Uh, it was just absolutely amazing. So I wanna just say, on beha behalf of a family of five, we are extremely grateful. Thank Thanks for letting us hang and be a part of this. God bless you. And just, Pastor Doug, Beth, we love you so much. Thanks for allowing us to be here today. Uh, I'm gonna jump into God's word and uh, just wanna actually send a big shout to all the dads that are here, dads online. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool thing. I became a dad 10-10-08, October 10th, 2008, and uh, my life really changed. Seven and a half months before that is when it started, okay? My wife came barreling down the steps on a Sunday morning. I'm getting ready to leave for church, and she comes down and she's like, I'm pregnant. And I was like, prove it. <laughs> and she did. She, she, she takes out this test, and it's two lines, and we start going nuts. You know, we're like, we're high-fiving and dancing and crying and all of this, and, and now I'm going to church, right? So I'm about to see all my best friends, and uh, I've got the best news I've ever had, and I'm like, I'm telling everybody. She's like, whoa, 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 big fella. You know, we, we don't tell people yet. We haven't told our family yet. We gotta wait a little bit, and uh, so I'm like busting at the seams. I'm so excited uh, with this news, and you know, I started to feel all the emotions, right? Concern, and worry, and stress, and joy, and everything, and you know, we went to the ultrasound to find out the gender, and we find out we're having a girl, and um, I was excited about that, and I'm, I'm one of those people, I wanna know. I, I don't know how these people are like, yeah, we'll find out when the baby comes out. Like, really? I mean, God bless you for your courage, but like, I wanna know, okay? I want the, the, the colors right in the room <laughs> when the baby's born, but we found out we're having a girl, I got very excited about that, and, and then 10-10-08, um, October 10th, 2008, 2 a.m., my wife's water breaks, and she wakes me up. My water just broke. Um, I'm the youngest in my family growing up, so I didn't have any you know, young siblings born. My wife was the oldest, so she had a front row seat to three births. She didn't feel that she needed to go to Lamaze. She's like, I don't think we need to go, I'm good. And I'm not gonna go to Lamaze by myself. So <clears throat> I, I didn't. And so when I hear 2 a.m., my water broke, in my mind, it's go time right now, okay? In the movies, when the water breaks, you're having a baby now. So I'm thinking, what do I need to do? 2 a.m., I'm a bit disoriented. Do I need to boil water? Uh, you know, <laughs> like Little House on the Prairie. Uh, do I get in the shotgun? You know, it's like Omaha. You know, am I, am I gonna be delivering this baby myself? I don't know what's going on. She's like, no, no, we're good. She'd already packed the bag. We go to the hospital and I nail two jumbo coffees because it's, you know, at this time, about 3 a.m., it's go time, okay? I've got to be squared away. I'm hammering coffee. Doctor comes in. Oh, she's barely even dilated. It's going to be hours. Go back to sleep. <laughs> Ain't no going back to sleep. I'm wide awake. So a few hours later, man, my daughter is born and I remember every single detail. She comes out. I see your head, I'm thinking, man, I'm, this is a head I'm gonna walk down the aisle someday. This is a head, we're gonna do homework together. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna go on trips together. I didn't know anything about Jellystone, but I knew we were gonna do some Jellystone type stuff. 
and I'm just, I had a flash forward and was so excited. And then the nurses, you know, if you've ever had a baby, the nurses, it's just like Tuesday. You know what I mean? They're just putting the baby on their forearms and they're like, eh. you know, and I'm like, whoa, you know, this is like the biggest moment of my life and put her under this heat lamp and I'm like, that's kind of hot, you know, sunscreen or something. And, and, uh, and then we buckle her up to drive home a couple days later and, and I've got the hands on 10 and two, you know, like for the first time since my driver's test. And I'm very defensive in my driving and I just start getting hit with all these feelings as a dad, you know, protective and it's primal, it was primal. I remember having the fear, now someone could really, really, really hurt me. Somebody could really hurt me now. Felt all of those feelings. You know what's interesting about Jesus is when Jesus showed up in the world, he brought a dimension of theology, theology being the study of God, the understanding of God. He brought a dimension that was void up until that point, or was virtually unknown, and it was God as Father. Up to that point, the nation of Israel and their understanding of God related to God in two ways. One, they understood God as powerful king. So they thought about the kingdom, they knew of his omnipotence, so the stories of parting the Red Sea or all of the things that God did in his power, even to create the heavens and the earth. So they knew he was a king and they knew he was powerful. The second, they knew he was a just judge. In fact, the, the, really the big part of uh, the relationship to God and the nation of Israel was the law, the Torah, 613 laws of, of pious living, 613 laws of, of ceremonial law, judicial law and moral law and they, they feared God, but they loved the law. And so that was their relationship. Only 10 times in the entire Old Testament, 39 books, only 10 times does it refer to God as Father. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and hundreds of times, just in the book of John, hundreds of times all throughout the New Testament between Jesus and Paul, do they call God Abba. Abba, Abba's an interesting word because it comes from the Hebrew Aramaic word Ab, which means father. So father Abraham, Abraham, A-B, Ab, father. But like in our world, it's the word for father's dad. And so little kids don't say dad, they say dada, dada, dada. So Ab, Abba, Abba was childish language. So here you have a whole paradigm of God theologically as king and judge and Jesus shows up calling him daddy. Abba, Abba, using childlike, childish language. And it was disorienting. But Jesus was introducing a theology of God as father, as father. Um, good fathers do a, a, a lot of things. One of the things good fathers love to do is wrestle. Okay, as a kid, I remember wrestling with my dad. Uh, if you're a good father, you wrestle. And there's a certain kind of way to wrestle with your kids when you're, a dad, it's really not about dominating them, okay? You're not trying to put them in an arm bar and make them tap out, you know? It's like, and you don't tickle them until they wet their pants, right? I mean, that, that's not good. If you're doing that, please stop. You're, you're, you're warping your children's theology of God, okay? Just don't do it. And, um, but, the, but, but when you're wrestling with your father, there's something about dad, you know? It doesn't matter how many kids there are. If there's 17 kids, somehow dad wins, you know? He just wins. And when you're wrestling with your father, you're learning stuff. You're, you're feeling his power. Um, he's, uh, he, he's exercising the appropriate amount of grace. Um, you're learning how to wrestle. Uh, you're bonding. 
And, and so as a dad, I remember just being excited to wrestle with my kids and, and I, I wrestle with them to this day. I'm convinced actually that one of the best ways that we learn from Abba, that we learn from God to this day is through wrestling with him. We wrestle with him. How do you wrestle with God? How do you do that? Today what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna tee up a wrestling match. I believe Abba is calling you to the, into the center of the living room, you know, out on the carpet to wrestle with you. How do you, how do you wrestle with God? I'm gonna give you three words to tee up this wrestling match. The first word is the word mystery, mystery. Um, if you're taking notes, write that down, mystery. Uh, the word mystery is found 22 times in eight books in the New Testament. The mystery. At one point, uh, Paul says, the mystery of God expressed through Jesus in whom all treasures, hidden treasures are revealed. Mystery. You have to understand when it comes to your relationship with God, your relationship even to the Bible, there's some mystery in it. Like the Bible's not written even as a manual, right? Like let's think about it. The Bible's really not one book, it's 66 books written by a whole bunch of different authors, different eras, different genres of books. Some of the books are, are uh, doctrine and principle. Some of them are suggestions. Some of them are historical narratives that you have to dig deep to find the salient point. You gotta look layers deep into the story to kind of figure out. It's not written as a manual. It's not like Genesis 1-1. Hi, I'm God. And Genesis 2, here's what you do next. And Genesis 3, here's what you do next. And Genesis 4, here's what you do next. It's written in a different kind of way, which means we have to embrace the mystery. Which means the more you know about the Bible, the more you realize how much more you have to learn. You should sort of be grappling with, with all of this for your whole life. It's okay. I find some of, the some of the times the people that are the most stubborn are the ones that know the least. I, I was in a, uh, a meeting one time. One of our team introduced me to a concept called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I had never heard of it. But the concept of the Dunning-Kruger effect is this guy Dunning, another guy Kruger, found out that there's actually a, a relationship between someone's confidence, confidence and competence, and it's not like what you would think. In fact, go ahead and bring up this chart. Uh, they came up with this. They, they, they actually find that the less competent people are, the more confident they are. So you would think that the most confident people would be the most competent, but usually competent people are smart enough to know how much they don't know. It's the people who don't know squat who think they know everything. So, so they said, it's up here, it's like, uh, at first you oversimplify something because you don't understand its complexity and they call that the peak of Mount Stupid. <laughs> the peak of Mount Stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. This happens in the fall in football games. Okay, men who were cut from the junior varsity team hurl insults at professional coaches that make tens of millions of dollars that understand the complexity of the game and you're going, these coaches are idiots. They're not idiots. They're brilliant, okay? The, the, there's a reason that they get paid tens of millions. Um, when you see something you don't understand, often you oversimplify. It's just a pitfall we all fall in. For those of you with children, do you remember how much you knew about children before you had children? <laughs> remember, how, remember how brilliant you were on parenting before you were a parent? And you walked through the supermarket and judged all the parents? What's wrong with these people? They need, we need to have some parenting classes around here. We got babies having babies, you know. I just, somebody needs a, and then you had kids and you quit judging people in the supermarket, you start praying for them. Lord, God bless her, Lord, help her. You walk past some mom, you're like, I've been there. 
Keep it up. You're doing great. You're doing great. Just hang in there. Okay, we're, we're the hurt. We got your back. We got your back uh, because you understand the complexity. If you started a business, okay, some people, the Dunning-Kruger, they go to peak amount stupid. They think starting a business is easy. Oh, man, all you got to do is listen to a Gary Vee podcast, and you just got to get a website and an Etsy. If you get a website and you put some Etsy on it, and you just put it on it, everybody's just going to buy it. You're going to be a billionaire probably end of the year. Okay, so, so this is the peak of Mount Stupid. What happens is eventually you, reality hits. And when you, reality hits, you now realize, whoa, this is hard. This marriage is harder than I thought it was gonna be. This parenting's harder. This business is harder than I thought it's gonna be. This living for Jesus is harder than I thought it was gonna be. And you end up in the valley of despair. And if you'll develop humility, you become a, a humble person, you'll start climbing the slope of enlightenment and eventually settle in the plateau of sustainability, which ends up in maturity. Maturity. Why do I say this? I say this because this has everything to do with your faith. Often the most stubborn people when it comes to their relationship with God, their understanding of the Bible, their grasp of faith is they oversimplify. Well, if I just do this, God would do that every time. Well, if I do this, it's this, and, and we simplify, but then real life hits and you end up in the valley of despair. Well, if you just give your money, then it'll all come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and yet you gave generously and you still lost your business. What then? What do you do then in, when you're in despair? What about the person that says, you know, reads the scripture, says, hey, if you pray with just a mustard seed of faith, if you just have faith and you pray, then whatever you ask for, you'll have, and that you prayed with all the faith you could power up with. Lord, I believe you, I trust you, God. And they still died. They still died. What then? You find yourself in the valley of despair with your mystery and you're trying to figure out what's going on and now I have to decide what am I going to do with this despair? Am I gonna come out? This is where you begin to wrestle with God in the valley of despair when you're in a mystery. So there's mystery. Number two, the second uh, part of a wrestling match with God is questions. Questions, mystery and questions. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus asks 307 questions. 183 times he's asked a question and he only answers three of them directly. 180 out of 183, he answers a question with a question. Good questions are a sign of intelligence. A smart little kid starts asking questions. It's a bit annoying at first because they're asking you about everything, but it's just, they're just telling you, I'm smart. You know, smart kid's like, why is the sky blue? What's that cloud? What's a cloud made of? Can you sit on it? They just start hammering you with questions. And smart parents and smart leaders foster questions. Any environment that stifles questions is an unhealthy environment. By the way, that's what cults do. Cults stifle questions. Jesus was like, keep asking. Jesus was Socrates before Socrates. Question. What's your question? Bring your questions. Questions should never be stifled in church. Often, this is why you can't get anybody to serve junior high Sunday school. Because now the 13-year-olds are thinking in abstract terms, and so they come in with questions. Hey, I got a few questions about Noah I'd like to ask today. Yeah, young man, what, what do you got? <clears throat> so you're telling me God put all the animals in the entire ecosystem in one boat? Yeah. 
What did they do with the feces? Do you have any other questions? <laughs> yeah, actually, funny, you should mention it. I do. Uh, so God destroys everyone except this one family with a flood. <clears throat> That's correct. Everyone? Yeah. Even like babies, infants, handicapped folks, elderly folks? Do you just drown them all? It, any other questions you, you have? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, actually, so this one family survives, right? Yeah, and then they all get out of the boat, right? Yeah, and then we're all here, right? So they started populating among themselves. Eat the donuts. I brought donuts today. <laughs> I brought these donuts. Would you just eat these donuts and play video games? And I tell you, free time. I just have free time. <laughs> hey, kid, you're smart. That's a good question. That is a really good question. And, and I encourage the question, and let's dig into this together and let's find. Don't stifle down questions. Let me ask you a question. Is there any question that you can't ask God? Before you answer that, really sit with that for a minute. Is there any question in your mind, in your heart, a genuine question, an authentic question? Is there any question you can't bring to God? No. God is Abba, and Abba through your questions, invites you to the center of the living room under the carpet to wrestle through your questions. The third part of the wrestling match is the word doubt. And this is a bit of a buzzword. I'm gonna have to work on you a little bit here to convince you that you're actually allowed to bring your doubt. Because the word doubt shows up all throughout the scripture and it's usually highly discouraged and uh, I kinda wanna show you what to do with it. So if you're taking notes, real easy, Matthew 7, 14, 21, 28. Just multiples of seven. Matthew 7, 14, 21, 28. We're gonna take a little magic carpet ride to see what you do with your doubt. Ma uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says this. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. What is that? That's a wrestling match. Ask your question. Seek in the mystery. Knock and the door will eventually be open. Wrestle with God. That's Matthew 7. Matthew 14 is the story where now it hits the real world. And Peter, remember the story where Jesus invites Peter to walk on water? Peter's out in the water. It's like the middle of the night. He's defying the laws of physics. And he, in one sense, he's like, this is cool. I'm, I'm walking on water. But then he's like, but that's, a real, that's real wind and real waves. And it's dark out here. And then, by the way, if you read all of, if you really wrestle with Matthew 14, you know what happens at the beginning of Matthew 14? John the Baptist gets his head cut off, decapitated. So you've got Peter out here going, you know, this is kind of cool I'm walking on water, but you know, John the Baptist just got his head cut off. What's gonna happen to me? He begins to doubt. And as he begins to doubt, he begins to sink. And it says in chapter, uh, or chapter 14, verse 30, he saw the wind and waves. He was terrified. He starts to doubt. He starts to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouts. Jesus reached out, grabbed him. Do you have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? You can look at that as a scolding from Jesus to Peter, but I think it's a good question. I think it's an opportunity for Peter to really wrestle with his belief and his theology. Why, why do you doubt me? They climbed back in the boat and the wind stopped. The disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. So you would think, Matthew 14, Jesus defies physics. He does all this, doubting over. No more doubting. Well, in chapter 21, Jesus teaches them about doubt. And he says, uh, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and you don't doubt, 
You can do things like this and much more. You can say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown in the sea and it will happen, okay? So you would think between ask, seek, knock, Jesus doing all these miracles from Peter walking on water and him telling them not to doubt and five loaves and two fish feeding the 5,000 and turning water into wine and raising Lazarus from the dead and then teaching about all you gotta have is a mustard seed of faith and don't doubt, the doubting would be done. No, no. Jesus gets the disciples together. He goes, guys, it's about to get really bad. Here's what's gonna happen. They're gonna kill me. Three days later, I'm coming back. Don't worry. Okay, I just gave you the itinerary of the cross. They're gonna kill me. You everybody look right here. They're going to kill me, but don't sweat it. Stand by. Three days later, I'm coming back. Everybody got it? Yeah. Then they kill him, beat him to death, basically crucify him. He's bleeding out. And all the disciples go into hiding. They begin to doubt. Dude, I know he said he was coming back, and I know he walked on water, but man, he was bloody. His body gave out. Somebody else had to carry his cross. I don't know, man. I don't know if he's coming back from that one. And they doubted so bad, even doubting Thomas, you know, who gets a bad rap, but come on, if you were there, you'd be like, man, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Thomas says, you can give me the doubting moniker all you want until I put my hands in, in the nail-scarred hands. I'm not believing, and he finally does. My Lord and my God. Now, you gotta think it's done. No more doubting. He's walked on water, he's resurrected. Matthew 28, right before Jesus gives them the great commission, verse 16, it says, when the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus told them to go, verse 17, watch this. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some of them doubted. After all the miracles and all the teaching and all the evidence and physically seeing Jesus and putting their finger in his nail-scarred hands, there was still some doubt. What do you do with your doubt? You could pretend it's not there. You, when you have doubt, you, can, you got like three options. The first one is to cope with the cognitive dissonance. La, 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 pretend like it's not there. And some folks do that, and they develop what's called artificial harmony with God. Your faith isn't going deeper. You're just not talking about the problem, and so you speak a lot of platitudes. You can do that. The problem with that is it might sort of work for you, but the people around you see the hypocrisy. Your kids see the hypocrisy. The people around you go, eh. La, 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 you're coping. The, the second option you have with your cognitive dissonance and your doubt is you can just get so fed up and go, you know what, what the preacher said and what the Bible said and what I experienced do not mesh, I'm out. I'm out and you can run and you can leave and you can lose all of your faith and all of your hope. That's an option. The third option is to bring it all to the center of the living room and to trust Abba enough to wrestle with it. You know who else talked about doubt was James. And James has some strong words about doubt. James says in 1, 5 through 8, uh, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Don't doubt. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose that he will receive 
Nothing. It won't get, he won't get anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Ah, you double-minded. You double-minded, wind-tossed. How can you have any doubt? So you read something like that, and you're like, man, what do I do with that? Because I do have doubt, so what do I do with my doubt? I appreciate your courage, James, but what do I do? Because I actually do have some. What do I do with it? And who is James? Who's this James guy? Well, if you study the Bible, you know, depending on the scholar you read, this is one of three James. This is either James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of Jesus' disciples, James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of Jesus' disciples, or James, the just, who is Jesus' half-brother. All of whom went into hiding when Jesus was crucified. All of them doubted. So James, okay, with all due respect, for you to come and say, if you have any doubt, you're like tossed by the sea. So what do we do with this? Do we just disregard James? No. What we have to do is dig deeper and wrestle with the text. When you wrestle with the text, you know this. When he went into hiding, was in AD 33 at the resurrection of Jesus, when the book of James was written, was about AD 70. So somewhere 37 to 40 years of time between he, when he hid to when he said, don't doubt. How do you get that kind of faith? How do you get that kind of confidence? How are you that steadfast? You become that steadfast with 40 years of bringing your doubt to God. 40 years of having the courage and the faith to trust Abba, to have enough grace to not snap your arm in an arm bar in the middle and to go, you know, I don't know, I'm hiding right now. I don't know what to believe right now. I'm confused right now. I've got some mystery right now. I've got some unanswered questions, some difficult questions. God, I trust you. That's how you do it. And sometimes it takes a while. It might take you 40 years to write something like that because that's what it takes to get there. I'm a pastor of a church. I preach God's word week in and week out. I always wanna do it with integrity, but I've got my own journey. I've told you a little bit about my family. Last time I was here, I shared, you know, both of our sons are on the autism spectrum. When my first son was diagnosed with autism, I didn't even think about it. I had no idea. I knew something was wrong, and he was displaying some signs. We went and got him screened, and they're like, yeah, your son has autism, and I was just thankful to know what was going on so we could try to get some help my wife was in the valley of despair. And so we started trying to work our way through that. Every night I'd put my hands on his head and I would just pray for his brain and I would pray for a miracle and I would beg God to heal him. And I would, some nights I would get emotional and, but every night fervently I would pray, conjure up as much faith as I could, just try to remove all doubt from my mind. And yet he didn't get better, he got worse. And eventually I ran out of the emotional energy to keep begging God for healing. So I stopped. Uh, at that time, a man in our church who has an adult son who's on the autism spectrum, he's like, hey Greg, let me give you a piece of advice. You need to mourn the son you thought you were going to have so you can accept your son as he is. That was great advice. I would have never thought of that because I'm like, he's alive, why would I mourn a living son? But he's like, no, you have to mourn a dream. You have to mourn a vision, an idea. So I did. I went through a grieving process. My wife and I planned to be done having kids at two and we turned the page mentally but not physically. If you, <laughs> if you don't know what that means, ask your mom after service. And um, <laughs> my wife comes to me, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant and we found out we're having a boy and I'm like, wow, this is cool. 
Got a great relationship to my wife and daughter. My son Hudson, we're cir circle the wagons around him in a special need. Now the dream's been resurrected, Miles. And pretty soon he starts doing the same stuff. And so now this dream that had been resurrected, well, I'd grieve again. And I hit a low place. I hit the valley of despair. I didn't know what I believed. Yet I gotta preach and I gotta be honest in my journey. I didn't know what to do. It was probably six months into his diagnosis that I realized I hadn't prayed for him once. Not once. And it wasn't like I was trying to spite God. I just didn't pray for him. I didn't think he was gonna, I'm thinking if you didn't heal Hudson, why would you heal Miles? And I didn't have the emotional energy to beg. So I was working on a sermon on prayer. I'm thinking, man, Lord, what do I need to see? And I, I realized that I was focused on God's power and I was undervaluing his presence and his perspective. <clears throat> I would pray prayers like, "What are you gonna heal him or what? I mean, you know more than I do, he needs it. So I'm working on this sermon. Every week I pr prepare my message. I preach it to two people before I preach it to the church and they give me feedback on it. And when I was working on this message, one of the guys said, Greg, can I give you some personal feedback? I said, yeah, he said, he goes, I think what you were wrestling with at that time was whether or not God is actually good. I was like, "That yes, that's it. Because in no other scenario that I can imagine, if a person acted the way that God was acting, would I call them good, right? Like Doug Miller's one of my best friends in the world, and if Doug was omnipotent, and he had an unlimited supply of the antidote for autism, and I went to my friend Doug and I'm like, Doug, my boys have autism, you see it. I'm their dad, I'm hardwired to provide and protect, but I can't provide or protect, but you can. Will you give them the antidote to get this impediment out of our lives? And if Doug goes, no. I'm like, why? You'll, you'll know someday. Someday it'll, it'll all make sense. Excuse me, you're omnipotent. I'm not asking you to withhold from anyone else. Uh, you have enough for everyone, other people's kids also. I'm just asking you, as their dad, would you give them the antidote? I need, we need help, Doug. And he says, ah, no. It'll all make sense someday. Brother, why don't you make sense right now Doug, is their dad, I'm begging you. I'm begging you, I'm helpless. I have no other choice. You can fix it. Would you do this, please? No. Would I call him good? No. In fact, I probably would never talk to him again, to be honest with you. So here I am wrestling with, is God good? And I'm in the place, because I read all this James, until I find out James, it took him 40 years to get there, that I decide, you know, I'm not gonna run, and I'm not gonna la, 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 cope. I'm gonna trust the grace of God. And I'm gonna trust Abba. Jesus made sure hundreds of times we understood baby talk, Abba. I'm gonna trust him with the wrestling. I'm bringing my mystery. I'm bringing my honest question. I'm gonna trust that there's no question. 
that I can't bring to God and I'm gonna bring my doubt and I'm coming to the middle of the living room and we're gonna have it out. And for a long time, to be honest with you, I'd been working around God because I, was, I wasn't sure if I could bring my doubt. So I'm working around him. It's kind of like when my wife and I have been arguing and we're starting to make up, but we still wanna be cold but classy. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I don't, want, I don't want to be warm yet, but I want to take the high road. So my wife will come in with things like, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to be getting the children some food. Would you like me to grab you something while I'm out? <laughs> like, no, I'll get my own. Thank you. <laughs> I was doing this with God. <clears throat> Excuse me, Lord, I'm going to be speaking to your children this weekend. Is there anything you'd like me to tell them on your behalf? I mean, I don't need you to give me something. I can certainly do it by myself, but this is my, my working around with God because I, I, I don't know what to do. And I decide to trust Abba Father enough to wrestle. So I bring it. so glad I did. I don't have the words and I don't have the time to tell you the depths of what that journey has been for me, but I can tell you, I've thought thoughts I never would have thought. I've seen things in God's word that I've never seen. I've wrestled through things. I found the value of his presence. I found the value of his perspective in the hardest questions. I'm so glad I didn't run. And I'm so glad that I decided to trust him enough to wrestle. And what I found is that he didn't snap my arm off. What I found is that I started to feel his power in ways I never had. I started to learn things I hadn't learned before. I found a bond with God in the journey that I can never fully express. And so if you're here today and you got a genuine question, you've got some pain, some cognitive dissonance, don't cope and don't run. Receive the invitation from Abba Father to wrestle. And when you do, you'll grow. And when you do, you'll heal. And when you do, you'll come to a greater revelation of your father than you've ever had before. But it's up to you. Last thing I'll give you. Maybe the best narrative of this in all of scripture is in Mark 9. Mark 9, a man with a special needs son brings his special needs son to Jesus. He says, have mercy on us and help us if you Help us if you can. What is if you can? If you can is doubt. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything's possible if a person believes. And verse 24 resonates with me as deep as any scripture in the whole Bible. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. 
I do. I believe, I believe you created the heavens and the earth. I believe that you're a good father. I believe that you're omniscient and omnipotent. You know everything and you're all powerful and that you are love and all of this, but it doesn't all compute. I don't know. I wouldn't let Doug off the hook. I don't know why I would let you off the hook. I don't know what to do with all this. I wanna believe. Would you help my unbelief? Today I pray that you'll find the faith the trust, the childlike faith, the courage to come to the center of the living room and to allow the Father to wrestle with you and you to wrestle with him and allow whatever comes out of that journey to bless your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your character. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your truth. We thank you that you invite us to ask and to seek and to knock, all the while accompanied by a promise that if we do, if we ask, we'll receive, and if we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be open. And so today, Lord, we, 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 we take a bold step. We take you at your word and we choose to wrestle with you. Lord, you, you, you know who's here. You know who's he hearing this word. I pray, Lord, through the power of your spirit, God, you would do a deep work and Lord, that you would give what needs to be given in this moment. We love you, we praise you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said amen. I invite you to stand on your feet. Let's just take a moment, reflect on God's word, and worship him together.